Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 146, Jesus as an Exemplar of Faith in the New Testament. Today's episode is a talk I had the privilege of presenting to the Nature and Value of Faith Project this summer at its meeting in Bellingham, Washington. This is a three-year initiative based officially at Baylor University, which is co-directed by philosophers Jonathan Quanvig, Trent Doherty, and Daniel Howard Snyder. They say that their mission is to examine the nature of faith as a psychological attitude, state, or orientation in order to understand its value, its proper evaluation, and its contribution to a well-lived life. My own project as a member of this group has been a little bit less philosophical and more religious, and is specifically looking at what I claim as an exemplar of faith in the New Testament. This is a test case for philosophical theories about faith, at least if we're talking about faith in God. As you'll hear, I also think it's of theological interest to thinking Christians. I'm grateful to the other participants in the seminar for their very helpful feedback that they've given me on the paper, which is the longer version of this presentation, a paper that I hope to have published someday. And I should also thank the sponsors of the whole project, This presentation, and so this podcast, was made possible through the support of a grant from the Templeton Religion Trust. The opinions expressed in it are mine and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Templeton Religion Trust. Before we get started, there are some slides if you want to click through as I'm presenting this. They're at the blog post for podcast 146 at trinities.org. You'll also find related book links, and links to a number of New Testament passages that I either quote or quickly pass by in this short presentation. Here, then, is what I presented in Bellingham, Washington. So my talk is called Jesus as an Exemplar of Faith in the New Testament. First, I want to answer the question, why should I care about this? Well, one reason you would care about it is just out of curiosity. You think Jesus is an interestingly good person. Jesus is just all right. (laughs) So you would like to know, you know, if these sources are accurate, was he a faither? Maybe that will raise your estimation of Jesus or lower it, depending on what you think faith is. I'll tell you what I think it's supposed to be in these sources in just a minute. There's a practical reason if you're trying to imitate Christ, is faithing something that he would do? or isn't it? And a theological reason, this is a thought that occurs to many people, if Jesus had faith in God, does this imply that he's not God? So for different reasons, as we'll see, people think God doesn't need faith, but look, this guy's having faith, so okay, this must be somebody else. Interestingly, Roman Catholic tradition until very recently said, no, Jesus did not have faith. Here's a little passage from Aquinas. It's written, Faith is the evidence of things that appear not, but there was nothing that was not manifest to Christ, according to what Peter said to him, Thou knowest all things, therefore there was no faith in Christ. Aquinas thinks that in virtue of the hypostatic union of the divine nature and the human nature, the human nature of Christ had what he calls the beatific vision, and he thinks this entails having all knowledge, having perfect knowledge, 
and because he thinks faith assumes uh, or is only current when you don't have perfect knowledge, then Jesus just couldn't have had faith. I don't want to get into this. I'd have to talk about the beatific vision, what that's supposed to be, why Aquinas thinks it's important. So I'm going to kind of pass this by. Talk about some other ideas that don't require full commitment to the Thomistic picture. So what about this argument that Jesus isn't fully divine? That Jesus had faith in God? Premise two, a fully divine being never has faith in God. And so the conclusion, therefore, Jesus was not fully divine. By fully divine, I just mean divine in the way the one God is divine, or what's meant by the creeds. It's something that's supposed to be entailed by Jesus being homo us with the Father, if you're a creedal Christian. Uh, but there are a lot of people in theology who, they sort of think that theology needs to update the lingo every generation. And you can believe something more like this, and you're kind of getting at the same thing they were getting at when they used this ancient terminology. So what about this argument? The older Roman Catholic view, as I explained, was that one is false, but two is true. So it seems like a valid argument. They just denied that Jesus had faith in God. Why did they change their mind about this? Uh, it was in one of the papers I gave for you to read, the one by O'Collins and somebody else. And uh, I haven't had a chance to read the original sources. There were a series of theological commissions starting in 1979 that led to reversal of course on this. I have to think it's some of the same sort of exegetical New Testament reasons like I'll present to you in a minute, but I'm just guessing about that. There have been lots of Christians that would just think this is a sound argument. Historians talking about pre-Nicene Christianity call them subordinationists. You can call them Unitarians in the sense that they're not Trinitarian. They think that the one God isn't the Trinity, but they think it's the Father. They identify the one God and the Father. They don't usually say it exactly this way, but they tend to presuppose it. One place you see this come out is in even late 2nd century, early 3rd century sources. Some of them will just say, Jesus says the Father is greater than I. He says, uh, there's something I don't know, but God knows everything. They don't then say, oh yeah, but he knows everything in his divine nature. They just leave it there. So people like Tertullian and Irenaeus, for instance, and in a different way, Origen. Lots will just accept this as sound, but what else can we say about it? I'll talk about some other responses to it. Here's one thing that occurred to me, and especially as I was having a conversation with some people here. Maybe you should deny, too, on the grounds that God has faith in himself. What about that? Faith in oneself does seem like a really important virtue, doesn't it? If a person doesn't have faith or trust in him or herself, we think there's something really wrong with her. She needs to be fixed somehow. Right? It's going to cripple you in action if you don't have faith in yourself. So maybe God has to have that too. And if that's right, then maybe a fully divine being does have faith in God because God has faith in himself. So what is faith in the New Testament? The main faith words in the New Testament Greek are pistis, that's the noun, and the verb pistuo, and the adjective pistos. And they can equally well refer to the trust one puts in God and or some human, or to the virtue of being trustworthy, the sort of person who is suited to be trusted, suited to be an object of faith. So when they say that someone is faithful or someone has faith, oftentimes they don't really seem to be separating these two things, which we think should be separated. You can give a case where a person has faith but isn't faithful. 
they just kind of assume that they typically go together. So whenever you see someone described like that, you have to ask, is one of these men or the other or both? And there are passages about Jesus, which all interpreters think are just in the sense of like loyalty. They're saying that he's faithful in his service to God and worthy of our trust, that kind of thing. But they're not referring to his faithing, if I can put it that way. But the question is, are there any uh, places in the New Testament that make him a faither? Somebody who has to have faith in God. And it is about faith in God. I don't think the New Testament really has anything substantial to say about faith in one's spouse or one's co-workers or community members, or that type of thing. It's faith in God, really, that's the, the object of interest there and discussion. Although, as I'll explain in a minute, faith in God is often also faith in somebody else, somebody else who you take to be God's representative. So there is that human aspect to it, which comes up pretty frequently and explicitly, as you'll see. Faith, as talked about in the New Testament, the ultimate object of it is God. It's human faithing that's talked about. I don't have a fully worked out analysis of this concept. I'm a little bit worried about that, but these are things I think they're presupposing about human faith or trust in God. Maybe I should say that also. Because it's faith in God they're talking about and God is a person, it's person-to-person -person faith in that they're talking about primarily. That may imply something about faith that or trust that or belief that, but it's, it's the, uh, the trust one places in another that they really have in view. So anyway, they do assume that faith is voluntary. It's in some sense under your control. Of course, there's no theory about how that is. It's supposed to be a proper response to divine initiative. It's maybe even obligatory in certain cases. It's supposed to come in degrees. Jesus, as you'll see, talks about people that have very little faith. He's surprised and happy when he finds people who have a lot of faith. So it's supposed to come in degrees. High degrees are supposed to be pretty rare. That there's something about ordinary human condition that makes this uh, a rare quality or something that people have little of. Some human faith acts are supposed to be causally necessary for some divine actions. This is an interesting point. This is an ancient catacomb painting of a woman described in the Gospels who has this long-term bleeding issue, this hemorrhage, and she comes to think that if she touches Jesus, she'll be healed. So she sneaks up as he's going through a big crowd of people and touches him and just can instantaneously tell that the bleeding problem is fixed. And Jesus says he felt the power go out of him and he wants to know who it was that touched him. And they're like, well, you're crazy. Everybody touched you in this whole crowd. We're shoulder to shoulder here. Finally, she fesses up that she was the one that touched him. And what he says to her is, daughter, your faith has made you well. This is what we do with causally necessary conditions. We focus on them and we call that the cause. We had a visiting speaker once at my school. I won't say who it was. This person skipped a meal before their talk and they almost passed out right in front of everybody. If they had passed out, we would have said that's because they didn't eat. But of course, that's only a causally necessary condition. Also, they were tired. They had driven a long way. Maybe, they, I don't know, they were stressed out. Who knows what else? Maybe they were even sick. Uh, but yeah, we just focus on one condition and call that the cause. That seems to be what's going on here. He says to people in other circumstances, your faith has saved you and your faith has made you well. Obviously, it would have to be causally necessary that God wants to do this and has somehow initiated 
something with respect to the person that's supposed to draw out this response. That would all be causally necessary too, and you could equally well say that's the cause of the healing. I think it's obvious that it has to require some positive cognitive response, in part because the initiative looks like it has to have content. So let me focus on that case that I just described. What was it that God is supposed to have done to her that made her run after Jesus in a crowd and try to touch his garment? It must have been something like with the content that if you do this, you'll be healed, right? And so now did she believe it? I don't know. I don't see why the response has to be what current day analytic philosophers call belief. So I'm sympathetic to what's been presented at this conference, the idea that it could be something a little less like assumption or acceptance. But yeah, there is a cognitive aspect to it. It's supposed to enable a person to walk with God, as they say in biblical lingo, that is to have a personal relationship with God. It's supposed to include tendencies to obey God and to respond positively to his testimony. And it assumes seeming risk. There's something important to the faither that depends on the object of faith, and the faither is not certain that the object will come through. And I think this is why faith is contrasted with sight, as in close-up, unmistakable visual image, not just any old sight, like not seeing it coming over the horizon, but paradigm cases of sight where you're virtually certain that what you're seeing is so. Okay, so go back to this. What about this reason to uh, doubt premise two, that a fully divine being never has faith in God? Should we say that God has faith in himself so that premise is false? I don't think so, because I don't think God ever takes any risk with respect to himself. It's not going to ever seem to a perfect being that uh, they're at risk of letting, letting themselves down. So if God's supposed to be essentially perfect in knowledge and power and goodness, and moreover, he's supposed to be independent on anything else for his existence and perfections, uh, and all provident, so nothing occurs unless he foresees its possibility and probability and intentionally allows it to happen. If you put all that together, I just don't see why he has any need of trust in himself because he just knows he's always going to respond in uh, the best way or one of the really good ways, depending on the circumstances. This is a piece of perfect being theology reasoning that supports saying that God has no need of faith in God's self, and so that's not a good grounds to deny premise two. Now this is a much bigger can of worms. Jesus has two natures, so doesn't that allow a fully divine being to have faith in God? In my paper, I briefly explain what I think is the right take on mainstream Roman Catholic tradition, and I'm influenced in this by uh, Timothy Paul from the University of St. Thomas, who just came out with a very carefully argued book where he lays out all that's required of classical Christology that's based on the ecumenical councils. 
And so the idea here is Jesus has a divine nature and a human nature. The divine nature can't have faith, okay, because that's all-knowing, all-powerful, etc. The human nature, though, does have faith. One of the things some of these councils say is that each nature has all the attributes and abilities that typically go with that sort of thing. So the divine nature is timeless, impassable, simple, but also omniscient, omnipotent. And the human nature is limited, dependent, able to suffer in time, and all of this. And so the human nature is in a situation like me or you and does have need of faith. So then two would be false. Having divine nature and uh, having human nature makes this possible. According to Paul, and I think this is right, the tradition authorizes what some are going to think are obviously self-contradictory statements about the incarnate Christ. They're going to say he has faith and he doesn't have faith. They're going to say the truth conditions for him having faith are that he has a nature that has faith. The truth conditions for his not having faith are he has another nature. He has some nature or other that doesn't have faith. Okay, if, if that's what those are really properly understood to mean, then it's true that he has faith and he doesn't have faith. And the way he's supposed to do this is by the nature's having faith. Hand in hand with this is the communication of idioms principle, which says whatever can be said of the natures can be said of the, I don't want to say the whole because they don't usually want to put it in terms of parts and wholes. The Christ which has two natures can be said to have faith because he has this nature that has faith. And he can be said to not have faith because he has this other nature that doesn't have faith and can't have faith. So what about this? This is a big subject, and there are a lot of people who don't sign on to all of these commitments of the classical Catholic tradition, but here are a few of my problems with it. The New Testament asserts Jesus to be a man, not merely that man is predicable of him. Those are two different things. We've just defined a special sense in which, according to this principle, we've stipulated that you can call the whole Christ man because he's got this nature which is a man. Okay, but the New Testament just straight, pretty straightforwardly says that he's a man, not only this point about predication. There's no New Testament grounds for saying that Jesus contains what looks to most of us like a man. This thing which suffers, which has a human perspective, a human mind, and a human will. Jesus does all those things. There's nothing about having a component that does all those things. Nor is there any picture of one body with two selves going around in it. Right? So one self would be the divine nature, the eternal logos, which is all-knowing, all-powerful. Right? That's, we could say, a person, although not in the sense that this tradition wants to use that term. I would say a self, a subject of consciousness, will, and action. There's this eternal divine person there, and there's also this human nature, right? but that looks pretty much like the kind of thing that you and I are. You would expect uh, something kind of like the case of demon possession where now I'm talking in my normal white guy American voice and now, now I'm talking in the monster voice, you know, whatever. I don't know, I'm speaking Latin backwards or something. In those cases, you sort of know when you're dealing with who. Now the tradition wants to say that sometimes he acts out of his divine nature and sometimes he acts out of his human nature. Yeah, I know, but my point is that doesn't fit the source. There's no indication of that. There's just one actor there. One way to put it is Jesus is one character. 
in the story, not two characters running around in one body. But I'm going to move on and talk about the Mysterian view. They would just say, yeah, I know the argument's valid, at least, or it seems valid to me, and it seems to me that one is true, that Jesus had faith, and it also seems to me that two is true, that a fully divine being never has faith. But, you know, I just still think Jesus was fully divine, so I'm just going to accept this apparent contradiction. Well, this isn't the place to have a full discussion of this, I think, this kind of hard-headed acceptance. Some, some people are going to take what looks like a devastating problem and say, well, this is exactly what you should expect. You should expect this to be a mystery. I'm also aware that some people will just say, this isn't the Mysterian reply, but this is more, I don't know what you want to call it, maybe just a conservative reply. They'll say, look, I'm so sure of my grounds that three is false. In other words, I'm so sure that Jesus is fully divine based on my Christian sources that, eh, there's just got to be a problem with this argument. It must really be invalid or it must be that one or two is false. I don't know which one, but anyway, I'm really sure that three is false. Okay, well, I think this is overconfidence, but um, again, this would take a long time to fully discuss. So the point about uh, that New Testament faith always ultimately has to do with God, but very frequently has to do with human intermediaries as well. I think there's a neat illustration of this in the first chapter of the third gospel, the gospel according to Luke. And there's a couple of angel appearances there. The first one is to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. And this angel comes to him and says he's going to have this son who's going to be a great prophet. And Zechariah doubts him. He verbally, well, I don't know about this. How am I supposed to know this? And the angel acts offended and strikes him mute until the time when his son is born and the prophecy is fulfilled. And the reader is supposed to think that he has kind of failed in his response to God. It's not just that he's annoyed the angel. The angel is speaking for God. And so Zechariah has sort of failed to have faith in God, and that's why he gets this temporary punishment, and he's, he's mute until his son is born. And then contrast that in the same chapter with the Annunciation to Mary, one of the favorite subjects of medieval art. The angel comes to her and says she's going to bear this son, who's going to be the son of God and a savior. And she says, you know, may it be done to me according to your will. And so this is why she's considered an exemplar of faith herself in all Christian tradition ever since then. She did it right. Uh, Zechariah blew it. The point here is not about trust in angels. Although if an angel speaks to you and you're sure it's from God, you should trust that angel, but not just maybe any old apparition, which might hit you up in the middle of the night, Ebenezer Scrooge style. You might have to have a belief that it's really from God or uh, some justification for that. But anyway, because of that, in the New Testament, if you believe in Jesus, at least to the people that he's been presented to, to trust in Jesus is to trust in God. And to reject Jesus is to reject God. And even more surprisingly, it extends to Jesus' peeps. He says to them, whoever listens to you, being the disciples, listens to me, Jesus, and whoever rejects you rejects me, whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. That's God. There's a chain here of people sending one another, and the trust gets placed in God by trusting in them.
This is maybe the substance of the talk as concerns the New Testament. Now I've got five ways the New Testament asserts Jesus to be an exemplar of faith in God. One is just by direct statement. The letter to the Hebrews, which we don't know who the author is, uh, in chapter 11, this writer introduces the topic of faith and he goes through this long list of Jewish heroes of faith. And then he, this is kind of the, the capstone of his rhetoric at the start of chapter 12. He tells the people he's writing to, let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. And actually, they've added the of our to the Greek, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. The idea seems to be that he is a pioneer, somebody who, who leads the way by example, who leads the way in faithing. Of course, that's not all he did. He's not only an example. Jesus is obviously an object of faith in the New Testament, too. But you shouldn't say to yourself, Jesus doesn't have faith, he's the object of faith. That's a non sequitur. Now, he can have faith and he can also be an object of faith because of this phenomenon of indirect trust in God that we've seen. Same writer, previous chapter, quotes part of the Jewish scriptures and puts it in Jesus' mouth, I will put my trust in him. That's a pretty explicit statement. There aren't a lot of explicit statements. I just think this was something that in most cases, the writers of the New Testament didn't think needed saying because of the things I'm going to show you now. Here's something closely related. This is a clear implication, and I claim that this is something the writer is asserting, even though he doesn't put it in the narrator's voice. The gospel writers have Jesus' enemies say what the writer thinks are true things about him. And the idea is that divine providence has set this up so even his enemies are giving truthful testimony about him. It's like a divinely ordained hostile witness situation. So in the gospel according to Matthew, he's being mocked by people who totally do not believe in him that are passing by. And these are some of the things they say. You are the son of God. He saved others. And then they go on, you know, let him save himself. He's the king of Israel. He trusts in God. Right. What the author is telling you is, here's the hostile testimony unwittingly coming in for all these things. So I think he is asserting that. It's a very obvious device. It's something that you can miss if you don't have this kind of divine providential view of the world. But these writers do, and they think that you know, Jesus is fulfilling all of these ancient prophecies and this is just a part of divine providence in the situation. Third element, I wax eloquent in my paper about this. Uh, if you just look at the big picture of his ministry, look, what if you met somebody and they claimed that they were, I don't know, the reincarnation of Napoleon? You'd find this pretty outrageous, right? Or if you met somebody and said that they were President Obama's best friend, Every Tuesday, he goes and has coffee with Obama. Really? Right? This guy I just met, you know, in Bellingham, Washington, he's best friends with Obama. Look, it could happen, right? But you'd be pretty incredulous. So the whole picture of his public ministry that's given in all the Gospels, I mean, he's saying stuff that would make, in, in a normal circumstance, would make you think that he's just crazy. He's the savior of the world. 
He's the king of Israel, right? This little peasant guy walking around with maybe no shoes on. He's the king. People laughed at him about this. Yeah, but the idea that they have is, no, he's not a crazy guy. He's not somebody with an insane Messiah complex. He's somebody who's fulfilling a divine commission and acting on faith. So this is a picture of him getting up in his hometown synagogue. You see this in Luke chapter 4. And he reads a prediction from the book of Isaiah. And he says, basically, I'm the fulfillment of this. This has been fulfilled in your hearing. He says this to the hometown crowd. They're like, who is this guy? You know, we used to play soccer with him. And, uh, you know, these people were his babysitters. Give me a break. No, no freaking way. You know, he's suddenly gone nutty on us. Yeah, it's nutty sounding stuff. But the idea is, no, there was no insanity involved, but there was great faith that was supposed to be involved. Another aspect of the New Testament portrayal, I claim it's an assertion, but it's, it's more by way of portrayal than it is by way of direct statement. Another aspect of this is just showing him doing typical expressions of faith in God. Things where if you see an ordinary human do them, you, oh, that's a person of faith. That is faith in God, not just any old kind of faith. So prayer. All the Gospels have him praying. Luke particularly comments on his prayer life. Submission to God's will. This is a really gripping scene in the Gospels in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he's going to get arrested. To paraphrase, he asks God if he can be excused from this. He doesn't want this fate that he's, that's about to happen that he's portrayed as knowing about. And apparently God says no. And he says, okay, not my will, but your will be done. Obvious act of faith. Just, I guess you know best. I, I don't want to do this, but if you're going to say this is the best thing that should happen, okay, you know best then. So it's extreme obedience. And this is something which is directly commented on. You know, obedience even whilst going down in flames in this disgraceful, horrible, painful death that's commented on by Paul and many authors. The central theme of the fourth gospel, the gospel according to John, is his obedience to God. He says, I only do what I see the Father doing. He says, the Father and I are one. He says, they're working for the same thing. At the end of the book, when he, his last words according to John are, it is finished. And all the interpreters of John say, what's finished? Well, the work that he was given to do, he has now done every bit of it. So he's declaring that. And interestingly enough, in John, he's emphatically a real man. It sort of hits it like a drumbeat. He's constantly called a man, on air or anthropos in Greek. The fifth thing I see in the New Testament is Jesus' teaching on faith, particularly in conjunction with some things that he says and does. And his teaching on faith is very interesting, and some cases of it are puzzling. You know, what's this business about moving mountains? You know, if you have enough faith, you can say to a mountain, you know, jump into the sea and it will. That sounds insane. Is he saying that you can have a magic power if you could just flick on this switch and like be throwing things around? I don't think so, because faith is a response to divine initiative. And so it's not just a general standing power that you can go, you know, you can now go in and clear out all the hospitals of sick people and you can rearrange the mountain scenery at will. Maybe, maybe take some of uh, Washington's mountains and give them to, uh, I don't know, some flat state that needs some. Poor Florida, they need some mountains to go with their beaches. 
Uh, no, so you can't do that unless uh, God should tell you that he wants you to, to do this miracle somehow. One facet of his teaching of faith, which is kind of interesting and funny, is he nags and kind of almost mocks his disciples as being micro-faiths. Oligopistos, the adjective in Greek. In your translation, it comes out, oh, ye of little faith, which sort of takes all the fun out of it. It's like when uh, Han Solo calls Chewbacca micro-brain and the whole audience laughs. It's more funny to call somebody a micro-faith. Sometimes when he does that, it looks like it's obvious that the reader is supposed to think that Jesus does not himself at all have this problem. And maybe the clearest example is in Matthew 17. The disciples try to cast a demon out of a boy and they fail. Why couldn't we do this? And he says, well, you didn't have enough faith. Oh, and by the way, he says this right after casting the demon out himself. Okay, so who is this guy who can make fun of us and call us micro-faiths? and lecture us about faith, even saying outrageous things that we then have to go back to our room and puzzle about. How could this possibly be true, what he's saying? Who is this guy? Well, he's supposed to be like kind of a master Jedi black belt of faith. He's supposed to be this champion faither. There's another example which is ambiguous in one of the Gospels. He's asleep in the boat and they're crossing the lake and there's a big storm that arises. And he gets up and he commands the wind and waves to be still. And then in one of the Gospels, he turns around and nags them about, why do you have such little faith? I mean, it looks like he thinks that they should have done that. It's not said. And a lot of people want to get another point out of it. And they're, you know, they, they say, who is this that commands the wind and the wave? Well, it's the Messiah. One more can of worms, kenosis theory. This is another reason to deny too. So kenosis theory, this is based on this famous chapter two in Paul's letter to the Philippians, which people take to be one of the two central passages about incarnation. And it says that Christ emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant or a slave. The Greek term is a kenosin. Kenosis theory is that there was an emptying that went on that is, that the divine eternal Logos emptied himself of some divine attributes in some sense so that he could become human, and not just any human, but a human that shares our lot, a human in similar epistemic and moral circumstances like we find ourselves in. Now what does this mean, he emptied himself? One of the stock examples is omniscience. Jesus explicitly says he doesn't know the day or the hour of his future return. He says only the Father knows that, not even the angels, and certainly not me. Okay, but it's traditional to think that a divine attribute of God, an essential attribute, is omniscience. Now, you can't gain and lose essential attributes unless you come into existence or go out of existence, but God can't do that because God's supposed to exist necessarily and exist a se. So whatever this emptying amounts to, it can't be losing a divine 
an essential divine attribute, that makes no sense. It doesn't even make sense to really talk about veiling it or sort of hiding it or deciding not to use it. If I have my omniscience and I don't use it, I'm still omniscient. Um, it looks like then Jesus would be a liar that he just said he doesn't know something. You don't want that. Now, a few analytic philosophers have made bold to redefine the divine attributes so as to make this work. Uh, one of my former teachers, who I respect and love, Stephen T. Davis, also Stephen Evans at Baylor, and they say, well, what's really essential to God, we should think, is God is omniscient unless he freely chooses to temporarily not be omniscient in order to become incarnate and save humanity. That was all supposed to be hyphenated. That's the essential divine property. Now, th this is ugly. It looks like the tail's wagging the dog for one thing, but the Catholic objection to this is one thing, and the non-Catholic objection is another. The Catholic objection is kenosis theory was first thought up really in the 1800s, and that's just too late to the party. And if you read the Church Fathers, they do not interpret the text in this way, and they don't think that you know God has this essential divine attribute, well, that long one that I said that I don't want to say again. And you know the typical authorities don't affirm kenosis theory. The Protestant way to object to this is a, a little bit more difficult. I mean, you, you have to compare your grounds for incarnation with your grounds for thinking that God knows everything. That would be one way to put it. Another difficulty with kenosis theory is if you're trying to get rid of apparent contradictions in your incarnation theory, kenosis theory can't get rid of all of them. There are certain attributes you might think are essential to God that no human could have, like aseity, for instance. That doesn't look like a kind of thing subject to this, this move of emptying. So I don't think that works, but there's a lot more that can be said about this. Now, how is Jesus supposed to be an, uh, the best exemplar of faith? He's held up not only as an exemplar, but in some sense the best available <coughs> one. It's not that he has the highest possible degree of faith. I mean, is there any such thing? It's a very heroic example of faith. You could maybe find other cases that are a little bit similar. But I think that he's supposed to be the best in a practical sense or in a sense of how effective the example is. So imagine someone's trying to sell you a diet plan, and here's their advertisement. They show you a dieter. God bless them. They are trying to do some push-ups, or they're choking down this big, dry, yucky salad. This is going to make you sympathetic to the dieter, right, and to his or her plight. But it's not going to, like, encourage you to adopt that diet. What everybody wants in a good diet plan advertisement is the old before and after picture you visualize yourself holding up your former pants and looking small next to them. Somebody who's gotten the prize, somebody who's achieved the goal. Okay, well that is precisely how Jesus is presented in Hebrews and elsewhere. And this is also in Philippians chapter 2. So Paul says that Jesus has been given the name above every name so that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other terms that you see in the book of Acts, he's been exalted to God's right hand. It's not the same exact prize that's being held up to Christians who are undergoing suffering, although it does one place the New Testament talk about our becoming partakers of the divine nature. 
And there's a tradition in theology called theosis where they talk about being saved as a kind of divinization, not becoming the one God or a peer of the one God, but becoming immortal and, well, much better than we are now. And so he's the uh, person that's not only gutted it out, not only heroically maintained his faith in God, he is actually the firstborn from the dead who's gotten resurrection to eternal life and immortality and corruptibility. One last little point about what would Jesus do, and this is partly, I guess, just to wrap up with why I think this is so interesting. Some people have this sort of harmless idea of Jesus in their mind. Jesus is just this lovable little fuzzball. He's maximally inclusive. Everybody is his pal. He doesn't have a problem with anybody. And so imitating Jesus would just be like, you're going to win friendly person of the year trophy. That's not what you see in the New Testament. This is more the kind of thing that could result in your listening to and obeying one of those voices in your head. And in obedience to that voice in your head, doing very socially unacceptable things, like driving the money changers out of the temple court. It could lead to your attempting to perform a miracle. It could lead to your doing things that just seem crazy and insane to others, and even things that might get you killed. This week's thinking music has been Always the Tease Made, Never the Tease by Dr. Turtle. To find out more about the Nature and Value of Faith project, visit www.thenatureandvalueoffaith.com. You'll find descriptions of the program, some videos of past presentations, and information about a September 2016 conference on the virtue of faith, also held in Bellingham, Washington. I'd like to say thanks to Andrew in California for his monthly donation through PayPal. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do it by clicking the orange buttons on the right side of any blog post at trinities.org. Before we go, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please don't forget to share on social media such as Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. And if you're a faithful listener, would you consider giving us a review in the iTunes store from your country? That will help other people to find this podcast. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.